Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Nick and John podcast, episode number four. What is up, Nick? We're here. We're back, number four, and excited to be here. What about you? I'm doing good. It's been, uh, I was really hyped up. I know we had a really great conversation about Game of Thrones last time, and it's carried me for the last uh, 10 days since we last recorded over to this podcast. I've been really hyped and excited about the things we're going to be talking about today. How was your week? Um, my week was good. It was a little less Game of Thrones filled, but I hope you did enjoy on Sunday. From what I understand, this season's wild. From what I understand, Arya Stark is God. Um, yeah, well, we don't want to spoil for anyone who hasn't seen it, but... Spoiler uh, alert. <laughs> yeah, it is an hour and 20 minutes of absolute incredible television. Yes, and all spoiler alerts aside, though, if you haven't seen pictures of Arya Stark's fakes juxtaposed on Damian Lillard and other people, I don't know where you've been. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's like uh, you were trying to avoid Game of Thrones stuff in case you ever watch it, and I was trying to avoid uh, Marvel Endgame spoilers in case <laughs> I ever get to the Marvel movies. Marvel Endgame, no spoilers, but oh my god. That, yeah. that, was, that was my week. My week is me still trying to come down from that movie, and I am... Sky high still. Oh my god. What do you think was worse? Uh, me having to pee during Game of Thrones or you having to pee during Endgame? So I had to pee like <laughs> like maybe an hour in. The movie's three hours long. Um, there was zero chance I was getting up. So it was pretty bad. I mean, I don't know what it was like for you in Game of Thrones, but I had this whole strategy. I went in. I made sure to eat light before going in. I went to the bathroom before going. But I made the stupid decision of buying myself a large drink to go with my popcorn. And boy, did it backfire on me. It was horrible. Yeah, see, I made the decision. I was we, I had a couple friends over. And I made the decision to go with the beer. Mm. And I was like, yeah, you guys want a beer? They were like, nah, I'm good. I, I don't need a beer. And I was like, I was drinking the beer. And... I was really like, no pun intended based on the show, but I was dying during the whole thing because yeah. I was like, uh, not, not only did I have to pee, but I kept, I was fidgeting because I was so nervous about what was going to happen. So it was like, I had my finger on the beer can and then oh. I looked down and my finger was bleeding and I felt like I was just in battle with everybody on Game of Thrones. So <laughs> it was quite the intense experience. I mean, at the end of the day, at least it was a little thematic. At least uh, <laughs> you were kind of getting into the events of it all. Um, on my end, I was more worried that by how excited I was getting that I was maybe going to pee myself because then I'd have to deal with the contemplation of, am I getting up to go deal with this or do I just sit the rest of the time? And that's when I came up with the brilliant idea of most people going to see this movie should be wearing adult diapers, but that's a whole other discussion. I would say that you have to sit there. I mean, you pay for the movie, so you might as well watch the rest of it. And, you know, everyone else is so focused on the movie, they're not going to smell the pee. You hope not. And I mean, look, a whole cinematic universe invested in, I mean, that's like 21 movies, I think, before Endgame. I was going nowhere at that point. Fortunately, I didn't pee myself. Amazing movie. Go see it if you're a fan. Uh, happy Game of Thrones is holding up. And uh, why don't we jump right into this? Yeah, one day we'll kind of get into both of those things when we're both caught up on each other's uh, latest pop culture fads for May 2019. Uh, but let's start off with something a little bit more serious. Uh, every now and then we like to kind of get into some interesting pop culture topics. And, you know, where this is not a political podcast. We're not going to get too much into each other's politics or what everyone thinks about this. But I'm, I'm very curious your opinion on this subject, especially because it has to do with sports, too. Mm -hmm. So 
Um, I don't know how aware you are of this situation with Kate Smith. So a few years ago, uh, when the Philadelphia Flyers were in the playoffs a lot, I used to watch uh, a lot more hockey then. And I would see before every Flyers game, they would do God Bless America. And they would have this older woman come on and partway through God Bless America, she would start singing and the crowd would go nuts. And it's very similar to the types of things that we had here in Montreal. Um, what was that woman, um, you, you know what I'm talking about, who used to sing the national anthem? I know uh, exactly who you're talking about. Uh, she never know, I think it was. That is yeah. her name, yes. yes. Thank, thank God you, you remembered it. <laughs> yeah, so it, it was very similar to stuff like that, where you kind of like during, there's the, the extracurriculars of the sports playoff games, where teams rally around specific things, whether it be their mascots or historical things. Um, I loved it during like the Habs games when they would bring out like, all the old players and they would be holding like old versions of Stanley Cups or whatever. And it really like hyped you up. And I think for Philadelphia Flyers fans, Kate Smith used to be that and she would sing uh, part of God Bless America. The crowd would be into it and they get all hyped up for the game. And the same thing at New York Yankees games, from what I understand, um, her rendition of God Bless America was played during the seventh inning stretch uh, during Yankees games for, I don't know, maybe about the last 10 years or something like that. So she was a pretty important figure in two franchises. And very recently, it was uncovered. And I'm not really sure how this happened. But people kind of went back into her records of her songs. And this is a singer from the 1930s, who was very popular in like the 30s and 40s. And uh, she actually passed away, I believe, in 1986. So she hasn't been around for, uh, I guess, like 33 years now. And she has a statue right outside the Flyer Stadium. So important figure. But they found in some of her songs from a while ago, from the 1930s, that there were some racist uh, lyrics, innuendos, titles of her songs in some of those things. Um, She had a song, I believe, uh, recorded in 1931 that's called That's Why Darkies Were Born, um, which is obviously very unfortunate, especially considering how educated a lot of people are who maybe weren't back then. It's very unfortunate to see and you wouldn't, you know, if this happened today in 2019 and someone created music like that, obviously they would be, you know, chastised and it would be very, very horrible. And that's not to say that it wasn't horrible then, but it was obviously a little bit of a different time. So what we have is a very interesting situation here where people discovered this music and spoke about it and said, why are we honoring this woman when she was clearly a racist? So as a result, the Flyers have begun the process of removing her statue from outside the stadium. They will no longer be playing her rendition of God Bless America. The Yankees will not be doing that either. Uh, so before we kind of get into like the details and about where, how we both feel about it, what do you think about the story in general? Whew. Yeah, like you said, I mean, I don't want this to get too political, but I mean, at the end of the day, it, I think, I think it, it's, it's fair to call this like a right or wrong situation. I mean, you and I have had the conversation many times of the idea of separating the artist from the art when a person has done more morally questionable things or let's even say morally wrong things, not even questionable, morally wrong things, but you, or people can still appreciate their art. I, as of recent, don't know where I sit on that fence of that argument, but this is different. This isn't separating the art from the artist because from what you've told me and from what I understand, the art is also wrong. There are songs titles and lyrics that are racist that are hateful so it's not a matter of saying this is a musician who did some things outside of the music sphere 
and I still like their music. This is things they did wrong in the music sphere. So my initial thought, uh, I mean, look, I don't know so much about it. I did a little bit of research. You told me now the quick synopsis of the whole thing. I think it's right what they're doing. I think you can't honor someone's art if their art is hateful, if it's hate speech. You know, I mean, what kind of um, message are you sending not only to the fans, but people in general? So that's really where I sit with this. What about you? Yeah, so uh, to respond to what you're saying, and I also want to be fair in giving the other side of the story, which is that uh, it has also been uncovered that uh, she did an interview in 1945 on CBS radio, where she basically said that uh, race, hatred, social prejudices, religious bigotry, they are diseases that eat away from the fibers of peace. She said Mm -hmm. that it is up to us to tolerate one another in order to achieve peace. I'm not sure what the context of that quote was. It's in some of the articles that is written about defending her. Um, So does that mean that she is a person that grew up and became a little bit more tolerant? Is this, uh, you know, was this considered art at the time? And was she appealing to a certain, you know, type of the population that may be interested in this type of art? And this isn't truly the way she felt. Um, Her family has certainly said that uh, they denied her being a racist. You know, that's natural inclination for any family when they hear this about their ancestor. So they're not going to necessarily say that. So I want to be fair and give that other side of the conversation too. Saying that, I definitely see your point. Um, It's not like someone, you know, did something outside of the realm of art. We're actually talking about her art. So it's like, how can you honor her songs when some of her other songs were clearly disgusting in nature? But this is where I think there is a little bit of an interesting discussion. Because I don't think that the standard for everybody is the same. So I think that, for example, if we're going to talk about the art when it comes to her and her, you know, racist tendencies in these songs... You know, there's a lot of, you know, artists out there, you being very familiar with the hip hop community can say that there's a lot of interesting, you know, popular songs out there that, you know, really degrade women. And, you know, I don't want to get into like what's worse or not, but, you know, there's things that, you know, in 2019 are not okay. Whereas in 2009 or 1999, when people are creating these songs, not would have been okay, but you know, would have been seen less harshly at the time. So when you think about your familiarity with some other people's work, it's like, where are we going to draw the line? Because as society begins over time to become, you know, thinner and thinner with what they're okay with, we're going to start having to eliminate people who are not sensitive to every single race, every single, you know, gender issue, all types of issues. And eventually, like, are we just going to have the most like PC society because art has to be PC in the same way that people do? Yeah, no, look, I think you raise a good point in the sense of art cannot be fully censored. Um, I think when you start to do that, you enter dangerous territory of what is okay and what is not. I don't think art should hold the same standard as modern discourse, you know, comedy as an art form itself. I think that's the prime example of that, where if we can't make jokes about, you know, uh, touchy subjects, then we're really putting ourselves in a box and deteriorating the art form for the sake of some people's comfortability, which I think is really not a good way to go about it. Um, You brought up rap music. I mean, that's a genre of music that is really based on, you know, punchlines and parody and taking 
from its outside and kind of bringing in. And I think with that, I mean, there was the whole scandal, scandal, if you even want to call it that, I don't consider it a scandal of when LeBron James was playing, I believe it was a 21 Savage song on his Instagram story. And it mentioned something along the lines of like getting Jewish money or something like that. And a lot of people I know were really pissed off about that. A lot of people I know really didn't think it was right. And the broader community seemed to feel the same way. Myself being a rap fan, myself being a Jewish person, I mean, I, I don't want to shoot myself in the foot to say this, but I didn't think in the form of rap, I mean, it was so bad. I mean, I understand the negative connotation that does come with it, but look, the person was trying to say something through a metaphor. Was it a stupid metaphor? Maybe. But did I think it was so wrong to be in a rap song? No. Did I think LeBron James as such a public leader and figure should have known better than to post that to his Instagram story? Yes. But that is when things start getting outside of the music world and they start going into the real life world. And that's when people start questioning, oh, is this how LeBron James feels? Because he is posting this to his story, what he is doing in his day to day. And that's when I think it becomes an issue when these things start going into the day to day. And when you have someone who is making art that resembles what they might be like in their day to day, then that's a problem. I mean, I don't want to dive necessarily into any artist scandal, but you know, you hear about a lot of, not a lot, but you hear about some hip hop artists or any artists for that matter that have had scandals with battery. I mean, I believe NBA Youngboy had one last year and a video came out of him allegedly being physical with his girlfriend. And then comes to the argument of, do his fans separate the art from the artist? But the second and I'm not going to say him because he's not done this, but let's say hypothetical artist Z starts making music about beating their significant other. That's when it becomes a problem. And I don't think it's the Philadelphia Flyers who are removing her statue. Yeah, the Flyers and the Yankees. Oh, the Flyers are removing her statue. The Yankees are stopping to play her music. Yeah, because I don't think either of these teams want to say that these messages are things that we back. And I'm sure they're actually to an extent, almost like retracting any support they have had for her, probably saying that they weren't aware or, I don't know, playing silly or playing like ignorant. But regardless, they can't have their names on this, right? For sure. Uh, That I do agree with. I just want to be clear that I believe that if someone wants to go to Philadelphia Flyers game, they don't want to go and then be upset and offended by the type of music that the Flyers are playing. And I think it's totally fair and within reason for an African-American to be offended when they go to one of these games and then Kate Smith music is being played, considering what Kate Smith has done in the past. My, you know, my concern is that, you know, as we continue to, you know, go to change to modern historical standards, there will always be an offended party. And I just want to know what the threshold will be as we continue to erase parts of history, you know, the parts that we don't like, whether it be music or statues or ways of honoring people. I, you know, I don't know what life will be like in 100 years from now, but I know, for example, like a lot of what's very popular now is veganism. And 
I don't know that, you know, people won't look back and say, you know, we were eating animals and at the, in, in the future, you know, people won't be eating animals and then they're going to look back and say, we need to erase the people that were eating animals. And that, that might be far-fetched. It might be true. I don't know what the future is going to be, but I do know that 200 years ago, you know, this would not be as offensive to a lot of people, which is very unfortunate as it is today. So as society continues to grow, I just want to know eventually, like, what is the point where we don't erase history anymore? And where is a safe zone? So if according to you, which is a totally fair and valid point, that there should be comedy and there should be music and there should be places we go where we're allowed to, you know, joke around and not be as offended and know that this doesn't actually reflect the artist's values down to their core, then I think as a society, we have to say, okay, you know, in a comedy club or when a record is released on the radio, we're not taking every word that the artist is saying at face value. We know that there's a, you know, a better person behind the actual music that's out there. But I just don't know if everyone will always feel that way. And I think there's just always going to be someone who's offended by something. Yep. I think I agree with that last point tremendously that I think no matter what, someone is always going to be offended by something. Um, I think everyone has the right to feel however as they feel. It's tough because, you know, my premise of my point is that, you know, this is someone whose art form has racist, whether it be undertones or just full on tones. Yet here I am also saying that, you know, I think you can't put such restrictions on art. I think it's a matter of assessing whether this is an art form that pushes boundaries, an art form that is edgy, an art form that parodies, or is it just hate speech? You know, it's one thing for someone to get up on a stand-up stage and have a routine that has some questionably, let's call them racist jokes. But then it's another thing for someone to just get up on a stage and start having an entire tangent of why they hate a certain group of people. So if going back to the example I used of 21 Savage with the Jewish money, that wasn't a song about Jews. But if she happens to have songs about black people and not only about black people, but putting them in a negative light or with negative connotation to it, then that's a problem. And where is the line? I don't really know. I don't think anyone really knows. I think that in itself is a whole other danger, but I think something has to be done. And I'm not saying we need to erase history because right or wrong, I mean, there's still like a, a Christopher Columbus day, right? And apparently it's coming out that Christopher Columbus was one of the worst of them, you know? So I think we as a people are trying to move in this world where our values have shifted to a more accepting, to a less hateful, to just a better place, but it's how we get there and at what cost. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with what you're saying. I think that this, the reason why I wanted to discuss this, and this is like a little bit darker than some of the stuff that we would usually discuss on this podcast, is because 
it's very interesting to discuss a topic where there's a million questions. And I think all of our questions are fair questions. I don't think that this topic in particular, you know, like two white guys necessarily know how, you know, the offended party may feel in this particular situation. But it's very interesting for us just as human beings to discuss a topic with so many questions and so many questions that don't have an answer. And it's interesting to discuss the philosophy of all of it. I think the last point that I really wanted to bring up is that, you know, there's been this other trend in sports over the last maybe year or two where you have these people who are being selected for the NBA draft or the NFL draft. We just finished the NFL draft a little while ago. And, you know, you have these authors who, in my opinion, are doing something really you know, not so nice, they're going back on these kids' Twitter accounts, and they're going to see what they tweeted four or five or six years ago when they were kids to go and see, you know, did they say something? And we've had like four or five instances now of people, you know, tweeting a racist lyric or like a joke from Modern Family that taken out of context looked inappropriate. And they're saying, you know, they're applying how they felt then and saying this is the type of person they are. So you had like uh, Josh Allen, who was drafted by the Bills last year, their quarterback. It happened to him. Um, and, you know, he was, it happened to him on draft day where all this stuff was happening. You know, they found in his Twitter account about him. And it definitely could have affected his draft stock and his potential to make money in the future. And yeah, for sure. Like, you, you know, you, what you put on the internet, you know, parents, you have to teach your kids to be careful what you put out there. But you can't always be judged for everything you feel when you're not as educated. I do worry that we're losing that line of thinking when it may come to someone like Kate Smith, not necessarily Kate Smith, but someone similar in that as humans, we can all grow and learn. And I don't know the background of all of these people who are saying these horrible things. And maybe they just, you know, were never around enough people from different communities to be educated and learn about them so that they can become better people and not feel these feelings. I don't believe that just because everyone says one racist thing, it means that they're evil and racist are never going to learn. They may have racist tendencies and then, you know, you know, learn to be a better person over time by, you know, becoming more educated. So I just want to be careful as a society that we don't just throw people in a metaphorical jail for saying one thing and that they can't ever learn to grow. And we should stop judging people so harshly in a way. 100%. I mean, you just said a lot there. You just said a lot that I agree with. But um, just to kind of like wrap it up on that note, I think that it's completely wrong to hold a fully grown person to something that they said when they were 14. I know that um, is happening right now. I'm a big Minnesota Timberwolves fan. And in one of the groups uh, that I'm in, someone posted um, one of the guys that um, we've been scouting that at the age of 14 he posted something that was questionable or had like racist undertones to it and look is that right no but it's a child it's a child who is ignorant ignorance you know parents teach your kids to be respectful teach your kids to be accepting teach your kid love because in the world we live in unfortunately it might bite you in the ass whether it should or shouldn't in the future and i think that's really not okay and even for fully grown adults i think we're too quick to judge someone's full moral compass based on out of context quotes or interactions. Just because someone might say something that is wrong, might say something that is hateful, or might say something that is stupid, 
it doesn't necessarily mean they are a hateful person. Am I backing people up for saying hateful things? No, that is wrong. Everyone should respect everyone if they deserve it. Do not respect horrible people. But I just don't think that, I think people are too quick to make assumptions about people and too quick to make full out blown assessments of people based on one small thing and without actually getting to know the person or understanding the context that they're making that assessment out of. Yeah, that's great. I, I think for a topic that there's just so many different opinions you can have on it and it would be totally fair coming into this to assume that you and I would have differing opinions just based on, you know, being different people. I think that you and I come to a great agreement on how we feel about the subject and how we should judge and look at people. And I'm glad that if people are offended that we can do something about it and you can stand up for what's right and how you feel about the situation. I just want the world to be able to ask questions and that people shouldn't be afraid to say, where do we go from here as a society, even if we're just trying to fix one particular problem, knowing that this problem is going to continue to pop up, unfortunately, in the future, what we can do to get better at it. Yeah. And look, with the way the internet is, unfortunately for us, uh, someone might be listening. Someone could take a lot of these clips that we're talking about right now, edit them down, take them out of context, and they can make us sound like we're on the wrong end of this argument, right? Or the wrong end of this discussion right now. But that's the world we live in. Things we may have posted online might come bite us in the ass one day. But that's where we are. And at least on this podcast, in life, we have a voice and we have the right to at least express our argument and give our opinions. Exactly. So let's move on to something a little bit lighter. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about uh, one of our favorite sports, your favorite sport, one of mine for sure. Uh, the most exciting time to be a basketball fan is during the NBA playoffs. And we have some amazing series coming up. So why don't we talk about one of the uh, series that you want to talk about? Um, so yeah, I want to talk a little bit about the Golden State Warriors Houston Rockets series. Um, a little more in depth, I want to talk about some of the Golden State Warrior players. But for now... The Warriors are up 2-0. Um, James Harden cannot legally see at the moment. Uh, he came back with his eye drops. He was given the little eye drop gesture as he drained a three. The Warriors are winning. Are they winning by a lot each game? No, but they're winning. And at the end of the day, that's what matters. I know Houston was one of the few, if not the only team that analysts, fans believe could beat the Warriors. I'm not saying would, but could beat the Warriors. And right now it's not looking too good for them. They're down to zero. And I want to hear what you think about this, John. I felt that Houston has a shot if James Harden hits his shots. Mm -hmm. He is the Peyton Manning uh, of the NBA, um, the Clayton Kershaw, the guy who has the most amazing regular seasons and then in the playoffs He's been okay. You know, he's been good. He's been James Harden. But has he been, has he elevated his play in the playoffs in the last few years? And I think that's been the big knock on him. So the question is, can he do it in this series? They took them to a game seven last year. A lot of people felt like the Rockets would beat the Warriors if Chris Paul was healthy. On the other side of the argument, the Warriors didn't have Iguodala. So, you know, a lot of people, you know, felt like that could have gone either way. The, the Rockets had one of the worst shooting nights in NBA history. And 
if they would have hit their shots, would they have won? Would the Warriors have hit some more shots? It's impossible to know. What we know is cemented is that it was a very close series and the Rockets could have won. And that's really the reason why I felt like the Rockets were the only team that could beat the Warriors this year. Well, the Celtics would be my second. I still felt like in the NBA Finals, the Warriors play the best that they play all year. And the Celtics have the best chance of beating them before the Finals. But that's impossible because they play in different leagues. So what we have is a really interesting situation between two teams that I wish were playing in the Conference Finals and not in the second round. However... Uh, After watching these first two games, I am not so confident in the Rockets. Uh, I would have probably said Warriors in seven again. And right now, I just don't see it. I think this is going five games right now, the way the series is looking. And that's very unfortunate for the NBA because this was the one little bit of drama that I think that the NBA in 2018, 2019 had. And the Rockets are just not playing up to their standards. And personally, I think uh, I would love to kind of get into James Harden a little bit as far as him as a player. But what I saw at the end of game one, which is basically him trying to go for three and then jumping towards the defender and saying that he had no place to land, to me is not the, you know, that's manipulating the rules to your advantage. And I understand that in the NBA, that is part of the game. Part of the game is how can you get fouls? I think Chris Paul is amazing at drawing fouls. James Harden is great at drawing fouls. But, you know, if that's all you're going to rely on to win the game at the end of game one, I I didn't really love that. And I felt like the foul shouldn't have been called and it wasn't. And I don't think they were robbed, you know, but had they, the foul been called and the Rockets won game one, I think we had a series. So I, I felt like that was a really big turning point in the entire series. And now I don't know where the Rockets go from here, especially with Harden and his eyes. So it'll be really, really interesting to see the rest of the series. I'm curious what you think about it. No, for sure. I agree with everything you're saying. I think the biggest downfall is just that you're not going to beat the Golden State Warriors. The slim chance you have, I mean, maybe in the Rockets case, not slim, but the chance you have to beat them, you're not going to do it if your second leading scorer is 18-point Chris Paul. That's just what it is. I mean, James Harden last game had 29-7, and seven, which is a very good stat line, very respectable, but that's not MVP James Harden. This is a guy who went on a tear of 40 to 50-plus games during the regular season. He needs to do better. The team needs to do better. I think most importantly, Clint Capella has to do better. I think the fact that Clint Capella last game with 14 and 10, which again, very good stat line, very respectable stat line, but he needs to show up more. They need to be getting way more boards than they've been getting. I believe, I I can't remember the number, but I saw some crazy stat of how well Golden State is doing of out-rebounding Houston right now. And you are not going to win if that's the case, especially when your big guy is way better than any of theirs. Clint Capella is an amazing basketball player. I think this season, last season, he's really broken out. And he has to do better. The whole team has to do better. You need at least one other player scoring in the mid to high 20s, or it's not happening. Offensively, it's just not going to happen if that is not the case. Well, it's funny, actually, also, because I think that, you know, part of their problem at the beginning of the season was defensively. They had their defensive coach, Bizdelic, who had left after last year, and they didn't re-sign Ariza, 
they didn't resign uh, Lukamba Mute, and they were mm-hmm. having really big defensive problems at the beginning of the year. And then the Rockets like slowly started to put it together. They rehired Bizdelic. I think he got hired back around uh, American Thanksgiving, and uh, they got Kenneth Fareed. And PJ Tucker started playing amazing defense. Clint Capella started to become healthy. Chris Paul came back. And suddenly when you had Chris Paul, Capella, and Harden all playing, all healthy, the the Rockets looked like an amazing team. looked like the team that could take down the Warriors. So it's interesting now that you have offensive issues after the problem looked like it was the defense for so long. Mm -hmm. No, it's, uh, it's interesting. And you're dealing with a team that, I mean, let's throw defense away for a second, offensively is one of the best teams of all time. I mean, they in general are one of the best teams of all time. They just have so much talent. And I think that's actually a perfect segue into the conversation that I really wanted to get into. The Warriors have three really big up-and-coming free agents, two of which are two of their three best players. You have KD, you have Klay Thompson, And you also have DeMarcus Cousins, who are all going to be entering free agency this summer. So, John, what I wanted to discuss with you was not whether you think they're going to stay or not. I mean, we could get into that. But if they were to leave, where would you like to see each player go? Or better yet, where do you think is the best place for them to go and which team would benefit the most by having them? Okay, so let's start with Klay Thompson, who is Mm -hmm. the one that I think is least likely to leave the Warriors. Oh, he's for sure staying, but yes, let's start with him. Yeah, uh, definitely number one place he would fit in the best, he would be the happiest, would be with the Lakers. No question. I mean, his yep. father was a Laker. Laker. Uh, he's a huge Laker fan. He's wanted his son to play for the Lakers for a long time. You know, there's nobody who LeBron could use more, maybe besides like Kawhi, than, uh, than having Klay Thompson play for the Lakers. I think he would be huge. He would turn around that team. He would. They would definitely be in the playoffs. So, that would probably be my choice for him if he was going to go anywhere. And I think if he is going to go anywhere, he is going to go to the Lakers. But I just don't see it happening. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you want me to go into my other, the other two guys, or do you want to kind of talk about Clay a little bit? Well, first, I'm going to agree with you. That was the team that I see were Clay not to resign with the Golden State Warriors, which we both agree he is going to. He is likely to. Um, I think the Lakers would be a perfect fit. I think it's where he would want to be if he wasn't in Golden State. The reality of it is the Lakers messed up by not surrounding LeBron with shooters. I think that's something they're going to do in the offseason. They're going to have to surround him with all-star caliber players, but most importantly with shooters, players that he can get open looks for, create plays for, and who can shoot off the dribble and hit three-point and clutch shots. I think their best best-case scenario is that they get themselves Clay Thompson and in the unlikely event, Kyrie Irving. And then the if they can't get either of them, they really have to go after, in the point guard position, Kemba Walker. In the shooting guard position, Bradley Beal. I think those four players, or some rotation, two, some two-person rotation of those four, is what they need to strive for in the offseason. And I think Klay Thompson would be perfect for the Lakers. For sure. Um, and then with regards to Kevin Durant, I think he should go to Miami. But mm. that's just me. <laughs> but, but in all seriousness, even though I, I don't think that would happen, I mean, that would be a miracle. But <laughs> it's not going to happen. Uh, if you guys didn't know, I'm a Heat fan. But I, I, look, it seems that he's narrowed down his choices to the Clippers or the Nets. 
this could just be rumors. I mean, there was no way anybody knew he was going to the Warriors at the time that he left OKC. So who knows where he ends up? I still think there's a chance that he ends up staying there with the Warriors. I mean, he has a really good situation going on. They're not like so stressed for money. And I think that they, he would, you know, he could easily sign another one-year deal. Everyone's so confident that he's not going to stay with the Warriors just because three championships, three years is a nice round number that I think there's a chance that he could stay as well. But I think that if he's going to go anywhere and I had to lay my shot on one particular place, I would say he's going to go to the Nets. I think that that would be where I think, I think he, you know, he has his own city basically to himself because the Knicks are nothing. And I think that he could really turn around that entire team. I don't think after the series he just had with the Clippers that he wants to necessarily go into that locker room. I'm sure if he signed there, he would end up, you know, him and Beverly would end up being great friends. They would welcome him in with open arms. I'm sure. I'm sure. But I just think that he's, if I had to go with my gut, I'm going to say he's going to go to the Nets. That would be my choice. I agree 100%. I, on the contrary, very strongly believe that he is not going to continue with Golden State. He's a part of the arguably best roster in team sports ever. But look, Kevin Durant is, and I'm going to say it right here, a top 15 all-time basketball player. And the only thing that is keeping him from being undisputably in that realm, if not even better, is the fact that he's on a team like the Warriors. I mean, the fact that you have this guy who the talk of the town right now is that he's the best current player in basketball, but he's not his team's own MVP. I mean, can we agree that that's Steph Curry? For sure. If you, to, if you ask me who is the most important person on the Golden State Warriors, the answer is Steph Curry. Exactly. Durant's the better player, but yeah. Steph Curry is so, the most important. That's problematic to his legacy. He is the best player there, but he's not the most important, not the most integral. He's going to need to go to a team where he has the most impact and he does the most. So I think he's going to leave. I do agree. I think he's going to go to the Nets. I would love to see them get another max player. I would love to see him and Kyrie team up there. That would be amazing to see some sort of rotation that involved at the point guard Kyrie, move D'Angelo to the shooting guard, have Chris Levert play small forward, Kevin Durant at the power forward, and Jared Allen at the center. That would just be flames. But we'll see what happens. Have, Have Joe Harris coming off the bench, Spencer Dinwiddie off the bench too. It would be a great rotation i'd love to see it happen we are clearly not big on the knicks over here on the nick and john podcast so to see brooklyn really solidify themselves as the team of new york i think a roster like that would solidify that for years to come so i would love to see kevin durant go to the brooklyn nets yeah this isn't the knicks and john podcast so (laughs) (laughs) no but i think that yeah i I agree I, i think that he would be huge for the nets I think the NBA community would be so pissed if he stayed in Golden State. And, mm-hmm. But it would be interesting. It would be interesting still. Uh, just there's a lot of people moving around, so it'll be fun to see what he does. Yeah, it's, it's his time to get his own ship. And I know I said I, that I'd love to see him pair up with Kyrie, but I don't think the core of Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, surrounded by a group of young and up-and-coming players is anything even close to parallel to his situation right now. And I think winning a ship with a team like that would really 
really solidify KD to where he should be and where he is in the history books in the greatest of all time. Yeah, and in the NBA, uh, no all-star ever wins without one other all-star. So, you know, to say, you know, like, look at LeBron, right? He couldn't do anything. with. I know he was injured. I know there's a lot of extracurricular stuff that happened with the Lakers, but he couldn't really do a lot without having another all-star on the Lakers. I don't think Kevin Durant goes to the Nets without a Kyrie. So I think he's going to be teaming up with at least one other person wherever he decides to go. Yeah, agreed. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Boogie Cousins. So this one's a little bit more interesting for me because I'm not sure what the status of his uh, tear is, if he's injured. If there's a serious injury concern, I think he stays with the Warriors as well. Mm -hmm. Um, If he's healthy, good to go. I think he got some good experience. But I think there's two places I could probably see him. Number one is Portland because Mm -hmm. of the Nurkic injury, which is a bad injury. And that's one where they could sign Boogie for a year because of injury concerns and they don't know what he's going to be like in the future. I could see him going very, fitting in very well on Portland. Uh, that could be a fun one. And then the other one is San Antonio. I would love to see him with Pop. I think that Pop has a history of working with very interesting types of personalities. Usually they're a little bit calmer and willing to listen to his leadership. Boogie's a little bit more aggressive. But I think if there's any guy who could make Boogie be the best version of himself, it would be Popovich. So those would be my two teams where I would love to see him go if he decides to leave the Warriors. Yeah, I think um, the duo of Pop and Boogie would be very interesting. Um, a coach that's can get heated and sparked up when it's needed, um, you know, really bring the rah-rah when it benefits a team, but really knows how to keep his composure and really keep his team in check. Before I get into my thoughts, I just want to read you some numbers because I was watching actually a video about players to not give up on. And the number one was Boogie Cousins. And something I found really interesting because obviously what's to come after this last injury, no one knows. It's for future us to discover. But a lot of people were really skeptical after the Achilles injury in uh, New Orleans. And just to read you a couple numbers, that season in New Orleans at 36.2 minutes per game, Boogie was averaging 25.2 points per game and 12.9 rebounds. So about 25 points and almost 13 rebounds with 36 minutes a game. That's phenomenal numbers. Then in Golden State, though, he was averaging 16.3 points, 8.2 rebounds per game at 25.7 minutes per game. Very respectable numbers. But to keep in mind, that's at 25 minutes per game. So if we go to his per 36 minutes post-injury, he would have been averaging 25 points per game almost 13 rebounds at 36 minutes. So that's all-star numbers right there. It's incredible. Incredible, yeah. So anyone who was concerned of how he was going to look post-Achilles injury, Boogie was looking good. They were restricting his minutes for obvious reasons because, look, he did get hurt again. So if he can manage to stay healthy, if he can manage to come back from his injury, I don't see it being – unbelievable to think that Boogie's going to come back in all-star form. Now the question is, is he going to get a max contract to whoever signs him? Because obviously that was the point of this Golden State season. I mean, Steve Curry even said it himself. Our goal isn't to re-sign Boogie, but it's to get him a max contract. Um, you were nodding your head no. I, I don't know how I feel. Because personally, I think Boogie's best bet or the best fit for Boogie would be to go to the Atlanta Hawks. Now, you have a young core of Trey Young, who has been phenomenal this season, especially the latter half. 
John Collins, who has been having a terrific sophomore year. A lot of people look past him, but he's amazing. I think a future all-star. Torian Prince, who's also very good. And then they just have a lot of dead weight. So I think they have room for max contracts coming in. I think they have room for an all-star quality center so they can have an unbelievable front court of Boogie, assuming he comes back in full form, and John Collins with Trey Young in the backcourt and find him another max guard to play with. And I think that would be amazing for Atlanta. I think Atlanta is due to be on the rise again. They haven't been since the, uh, <laughs> since the days of Kyle Korver, Jeff Teague, Paul Millsap, Al Horford. But yeah, I think Boogie would look great on the Hawks. A team like Dallas came to mind as well. They're in need of a center. They have room for... They do um, have Porzingis, though. Yeah, but I don't see Porzingis, even in the modern era of NBA, playing center all that much due to his build and strength. So, but going to, you were nodding your head at the idea of Boogie getting a max contract. If they can pull two max players and then manage to sign Boogie not on a max contract, that could be huge. Because I know I mentioned Kemba Walker, that I would love to see him go to LA, but rumor has it, He's their number one option. Dallas is number one looking to recruit Kemba Walker. So they can get Kemba Walker, another max player, and then get Boogie for a modest salary. Then they can be one of the most dangerous teams in the league, assuming Boogie Cousins comes back in full form. Yeah, for sure. I I just don't think that any team should give Boogie a max contract this year. I think he's going to do another one-year deal similar to the one that he did with Golden State last year because of this injury. This injury changed everything for Boogie for this summer where now teams are going to wonder, why would I commit so much money to you when there's all these injury concerns? So I really would not commit if I was, whether it's Portland, San Antonio, Dallas, any of these teams, Atlanta, any of the teams that we just discussed, don't give Boogie a max contract. That would be a dangerous, dangerous proposition for someone who has had two very serious injuries in two and a half years. You're, you're 100% right. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm someone who doesn't bet all their chips on the guy with uh, past injuries, the guy who was injury prone. I agree with you 100%. I would just love to see him on the young upcoming team, a uh, team that has money to after a, playing a full season of ball and staying healthy for a full season of ball to come back and then give him that max contract that he has deserved for all these years. I agree. I think that would be very exciting. I'm curious to see what happens to him in the future. And I can't wait to kind of, as these series continue to go on in the second round, that you know we'll see what happens. If Houston can come back, what's going to happen with the Celtics and the Bucks? and the uh, Toronto Raptors and the 76ers. So maybe next podcast, we'll dive a little bit deeper into those second round series and potentially the conference finals, depending on what we record. Yep, looking forward to it. Okay, so the last thing that I think that we should talk about today is last week I gave this impassioned speech about why you should watch Game of Thrones and why people should watch it because it's very exciting. And like we spoke about at the beginning of the podcast, a very big pop culture topic right now. And we brought up that maybe it's important to kind of let our listeners know what are some of the TV shows that we think are our favorite shows, things that you should watch. So, you know, we'll save it for another time when we're kind of going to get a little bit deeper, maybe like our top 10 uh, shows that give you FOMO. I think that's what we talked about last time. This time we're going to get into what we call must-see TV 
from the three main categories of television. So reality television, comedy, and dramas. Drama slash action. Exactly, yeah. Drama, action, anything that doesn't fit the realms of the other two. Exactly. So we're going to talk about our favorite ones that, like we said, if someone, you know, you know, said to you, what is the number one show in this particular category? Why should you watch that show? We'll talk a little bit about that and then we'll give like an honorable mention here or there about other shows that we think are important. So Nick, what category do you want to start with? I think let's, let's start with reality. I think the other two have stronger um, options in them and can make for a better discussion. So let's uh, dive into reality, especially because I believe we probably have the same answer. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm Do right. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. So, so reality, of course, uh, this is a special place in my heart because we grew up literally with the dawn of the greatest reality television competition shows. Reality TV does not just encompass competition shows there's shows like the kardashians and Mm -hmm. shows like the different mtv shows like uh different dating shows and stuff that you know they're not always competitions there's also you know real life examining people um a you know documentary style reality television that exists too but for my purposes for what i love i love these reality television competition shows whether it started with the real world or survivor big brother all these shows that happened in the early 2000s and really grew into incredible franchises, American Idol, Bachelor, all these ones. But the one I want to focus on, the one that I love the most. Uh, wait, are... wait, wait, do you want to give your honorable mention first, maybe? Okay, so yeah, okay, so let's do that. So actually, my honorable mentions are, there's, I have two of them. One is a show that I absolutely love and would recommend anyone to watch for many reasons. One is a show that I think is a really cool and interesting show. It's not necessarily one that I would recommend to you because I don't think that you would love it in general, but I just think that for its impact on the world, I think it's very interesting. So my two honorable mentions in the reality TV category, number one is Big Brother. Um, And I don't know if you thought I was going to say that for my favorite one, but (laughs) Big Brother is by far one of my favorite shows and it's absolutely incredible. We could, I could do a whole topic on Big Brother about you know, 16 people, different personalities, you throw them in a house together, they have to compete for power, they have to communicate, and one by one they get voted out. All happening 24-7 live, where you can go on your computer and watch and see what's happening and see these social interactions. It is by far the most fascinating show on TV as far as I'm concerned. The other one is The Bachelor, which Mm. I think is very interesting and must-see TV from the perspective of that everyone just loves drama and relationships and seeing all these things. And for as fabricated as a lot of people feel it is, there's just so much, you know, after seeing the last few seasons, there's so many interesting discussion points that come from The Bachelor that, funny enough, I think out of all of these reality TV shows, The Bachelor is the one that I think is going to survive, you know, far beyond us because it's never, there's never going to be enough relationship drama that'll be never run out of content exactly so those are my uh honorable mentions do you want me to get into the one that is my number one uh yeah go for it so my number one is survivor um i think that's so so as i said i think we have the same one thinking you were gonna say big brother as i said it i'm like you know what this is definitely survivor sorry continue look i think big brother is probably I have a really tough time. These are like fighting between my two children sometimes between Big Brother and Survivor. That's how I feel. It's like someone's like, oh, what's your favorite child? Like it's very hard to pick. But as far as Survivor is concerned, the reason why I would recommend it over Big Brother is just that aspect of you take 20, 60 to 20 people, you put them on an island and these people are actually building a society for themselves. 
the positive that I love that they're basically starting from scratch, they're building shelter, they're, you know, stripped down to their bones as far as, you know, their clothes are dirty all the time, they never get to shower, they have to get their own food, you know, it creates such another level of tension, when every three days, they have to vote somebody out, and they're just so emotionally and physically drained, that, you know, it's just interesting to study human beings in a way that, you know, you or I could step tomorrow into the Big Brother house and we can go compete. But to go on Survivor, that's like a whole other level of preparation that you have to do for your body and for your mind. And to go through that process, I've listened to uh, many people who have come back from the island after playing Survivor and they say, even just to hear music again for the first time in, you know, two months, it's like hearing, you know, it's like being born again, you know, hearing a song for the first time, the song sounds so much more beautiful because you haven't heard music in so long. And it really changes you as a human being participating in that show. And for those reasons, along with being very interested in the game and the strategy and everything, you know, I could write a, a thesis on why Survivor is an amazing sh show. And there are plenty of people who do. So that is why it is my must-see TV that I would recommend is go back, watch it, see how it's developed over the last 20 years. And the thing that I find really compelling and really interesting is that in 2020, coming into next year, supposedly the rumor is it's going to be the 40th season of Survivor and they're going to be doing an all-winners edition of Survivor. So they're going to take the 20 best winners of the past uh, 20 years they usually do two, uh, two seasons every year, and they're going to bring them back, and I think it's going to be an incredible season of television to watch. I might have to uh, tune in. <laughs> I've actually, um, I've never watched Survivor, um, so it's automatically not on my list. Um, but yeah, no, I agree that it's probably a whole other component. I mean, it's kind of, to an extent, Big Brother on steroids, right? So for me, my honorable mention kind of coming in left field was Jersey Shore. I think the Jersey Shore really changed things. Celebrities that we have in today's world probably wouldn't exist. The Jersey Shore wouldn't have happened and kind of created that lane of literally becoming famous for being so outlandish. Look, it's silly. You question sometimes why you're watching it, but it's a fun watch. It's entertaining. If you literally want to just be entertained for the sake of being entertained, it's a hilarious show. So that's my honorable mention. But going into what is my must-watch reality television show, ironically enough, I have not watched it for the past, I don't know how many seasons, but it's Big Brother. Um, you made a great case for Big Brother going into a house filled with people you have nothing about, having to put on this persona, having to work with people, but at the same time, use them for your own personal gain. At the end of the day, everyone's trying to win a competition, right? So I always found that super interesting. We used to watch it. I mean, you still do, but we used to watch religiously together. It's amazing. I think it's the best world of a competition show versus a real world slash Kardashians kind of show. You know, you're getting all the competitions, people fending for themselves to win this con this show, but at the same time, you're getting invested in their personal lives and who they are as people and the relationships they develop in this show. So I find Big Brother is the perfect balance of the two things that people love the most about reality television. The people and the relationships as well as the competition. Because moving, as we go into the comedy and drama section of this discussion, I think, 
characters and the relatability is the biggest, biggest factor when determining what is a good television program. Um, I think it's the backbone. I think it's what makes people love versus the versus watching a show and loving it. So I find Big Brother, whether it be that they get the right people to come on, which I'm sure is a part of it, or the way the show is produced and the way it's edited and the way they frame it, they do a great job at making you invest yourselves into these players, into these contestants, and at the same time, watch them do some crazy things and some crazy competition, whether they be mental competitions or physical. So for all those reasons, Big Brother is my number one must-see reality television show. Yeah, and I think that the live feeds of Big Brother are a huge plus over any other reality TV show. The fact that you can see it unedited 24-7 is so much more interesting because it's not a product that is presented to you. It's you can take what you want from the product available. So I think that's great. But let's get into the next subject. So I want to do comedy next? Yeah, let's go for it. Okay, so uh, how about you go first this time? So tell me about your honorable mentions in comedy. So I was actually having a huge issue deciding my honorable mention. You had mentioned two in the last uh, round with reality. So in that case, I'm going to mention two as well. My first honorable mention and going really out of left field and going back a little bit is Boy Meets World. You know, Boy Meets World with Sabrina on ABC, that lineup of shows was something we would gather around TV every single week, my entire family, we watch. I'm sure that has a part in why I think so highly of it. But it was just a show that was really relatable. The characters were extremely lovable, yet they dove into some issues and things that we deal with in our day-to-day and the average teen or family has to go through. So I always thought it was a great show. I think the characters are hilarious. I think Mr. Feeney is an icon. So Boy Meets World is one of my two honorable mentions, the other being South Park. And I really wanted to try and stay away from the types of shows that some people may consider silly, but I just couldn't. I think South Park underneath it all is just so brilliant. And the way they parody what's going on, whether it be in society, whether it be in pop culture, whether it be anything that is happening in the world today is just on such another level. And it's self-awareness is something that they managed to do in a way that is not obnoxious whatsoever, which I felt shows like Family Guy have bordered on obnoxious when trying to be self-aware. But South Park just hits it on the nose. The movie, which I know we're talking television, but the movie was so phenomenal. It won Best Musical. They're amazing. Trey Parker and Matt Stone. The show is brilliant. So South Park be my honorable mention. But my number one, and anyone who knows me really well can guess, is The Office. I think The Office is the perfect comedy. I think it is arguably the perfect show, but without a doubt, the perfect comedy. The characters, for the most part, are all more lovable than the next. You literally fall in love with this group of people working at Dunder Mifflin. They work at a paper company, something so mundane, yet seems so exciting. And seems, I mean, after watching the show, I was like, oh my God, I want to go work at some little office. I want to go work at Dunder Mifflin. The way that it is produced and filmed, that it is supposed to be reality television show, being a mockumentary is genius. I mean, I know 
by the way, I'm talking about the American office. I know it is based off of its English counterpart, but trying to watch that, I just didn't get the same feeling. I didn't relate to the characters in the same way. Michael Scott is one of the funniest characters of all time. I will fight anyone on that. It's a great show. It has you rooting for its characters. It has you at your lowest during its lows. And by that, I mean the emotional moments, not low points of the show. It has you at highs during its high points. I still cannot get through the finale or, spoiler alert, Jim and Pam's wedding without crying. And I have seen the series at least eight times. Um, that's how good it is. That's how much it pulls at your heartstrings, how much you fall in love with these characters, which again, I'm going to say is one of the most important factors when contributing to a great television show. So with me, it's The Office. I think it has the most quotable jokes and lines. I find myself constantly with other Office fans quoting the show. Um, its moments are just so memorable. and look, I can't believe I wasn't watching this show when it was on television. That makes sense. And I could see that you would pick that for sure. Uh, for my two honorable mentions, I went with first off Seinfeld. Yes. Uh, Seinfeld, uh, George, Elaine, Kramer, Jerry, they are the Beatles of comedy. <laughs> so no matter you know where you are, what generation you're from, you've heard of Seinfeld. As long as I guess I actually it was funny, uh, a little side story is that uh, there's a woman in my office who lived in France and she only moved here five years ago. And it turns out they never had Seinfeld in France, so she didn't know what Seinfeld was, which was crazy to me. So, uh, fun fact that they didn't have it there, and I, I think that's insane because I think everyone in the world, for the most part, that I know, like 99.9% of the people I know, know Seinfeld, have seen Seinfeld. So, I think that's going to be the only person you will probably meet in your lifetime who has not heard of Seinfeld. Exactly. So very bizarre. So the reason it's an honorable mention for me is that uh, I love the show. I love watching it. It always makes me laugh. I think it's very genius in the things that they do. A lot of things are extremely relatable in the ironic stories that happened. Uh, the, Jerry's comedy is great. Kramer's physical comedy is great. I don't know that the show has aged as well as it would like. I think if you go back and you watch some of the show, it does look like a show from the 80s or 90s. Whereas my second honorable mention or I guess my first honorable mention, if you want to put it that way, would be Friends, which I don't think has aged, really. Sorry, uh, I, I just have this look of shock that Friends is your honorable. Okay, now continue, but I'm really excited to hear what you picked. You're going to understand why. Um, but Friends, to me, is like by far one of my all-time favorite shows. It doesn't, it is the, I would argue with anyone that is the most relatable show ever on television. I think that no matter where you are, if you have three or four or five group of friends, you're always thinking to yourself, who in this group is Ross? Who is Rachel? Who is Joey? Who is Chandler? Who's Phoebe? Who's Monica? You're always trying to figure it out. You're always like, oh, I would love to get an apartment that is like the friend's apartment. Every you know episode, I've seen every episode probably 15 times. I can recite lines. It still feels fresh to me. So is that because I'm so in love with it that I can't see the forest from the trees? I don't know, but I've received the same feedback from almost everybody. I've never heard anyone say, I hate friends, except for people who are so strong Seinfeld lovers that they can't give up the love for Seinfeld in exchange for giving some to friends. So for me, Friends is one of the greatest shows of all time. 
no question about it. And I think that uh, I once made the argument to you that I really wish the friends people who are probably never going to have an, an actual reunion had filmed like five to 10 lost episodes and just released them throughout, you know, our lifetimes. And it's like, oh, we just found this episode filmed in the middle of season three of Friends that just came out. That would be such a, tel- like a television event, especially in a world where, as we discussed last time, we're watching a lot less live TV everyone would gather around whether you watch friends or not that would be the biggest thing on television 100% and I always made the argument that if you're making a new show and you know that it's great example like Game of Thrones like they're spending so much money on it they're ending the series properly you know friends the, the creators they probably felt at the time that they had enough episodes create another episode release it in five years you're gonna see what's gonna happen the hype for that episode will be incredible so um, you don't have to tell anybody about it. You keep it a secret and then you release it. So I think that's really, really fun and interesting if a show would ever do that. But my number one, and this is not a sitcom, but it is technically in the comedy sphere, is Saturday Night Live. So does that, okay. <laughs> does that make sense to you? That, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, I continue. <laughs> yes. So I went back and I, I grew up, uh, Lauren Michaels, the creator of Saturday Night Live, which I think is the greatest comedy show of all time, always said that, you're going to love SNL when you're in high school. Your favorite cast will be the cast that is on in high school. And every single person I've spoken to that's watched SNL, and I always say, oh, you know, have you seen this episode of SNL? What did you think about last week's episode? And they say to me, oh, it's not as good as it used to be. And I was like, so when was it great? And they say, oh, when Sandler was on or when Will Ferrell was on. And I was like, well, were you in high school when Will Ferrell was on? And they're like, yeah. And this is like a proven concept that's always happened. And for us, the hater forte armison sudeikis Kristen wig andy samberg that cast which is like for us it's the greatest legendary. comedy cast legendary cast but for other people who didn't go through it throughout their time like we went through high school with the greatest digital shorts and all these sketches and the, the Kristen wig like recurring characters and stuff and we were reciting these lines and they became a part of our day-to-day as far as referencing things these people were you know legends at, in comedy And then when you look back on it and you look at the amount of people that have come out of SNL over the years, I still tell my friends, like I tell you, I tell other people, like you're watching a movie and I'm like, well, you know, that guy was on Saturday Night Live, right? And you don't realize it because that's where they got their their start. So this is the, you know, all the shows that we're watching, you know, the friends, Seinfeld, um, The Office, all these, you know, they have their own way, their own actors come in there and they establish themselves on these shows. But a lot of the surrounding cast, or a lot of the guest stars, these are people who are coming from Saturday Night Live and getting their start there. And you're seeing these incredible, incredible performers learn how to perform and become icons in the entertainment industry. So this is a show that I've gone back from 1975 to 2019. And I've seen every single episode Every single cast, there's good years, there's bad. You're not always going to have a good episode. But as far as an institution goes and must-see TV, if someone said, I've never seen an episode of Saturday Night Live, I say you have to watch the show because what they do, what they pull off in six days to get the show on the air Saturday at 11.30 to do a live hour-and-a-half show is incredible. And people take for granted what they do on a week-to-week basis and how hard it is to pull off the things they've done. I've been to a show. I went a few years ago to see Saturday Night Live and just to see the crew and how quickly they work between breaks. It is just one of the greatest things on television. And I could not be more proud to love Saturday Night Live. Yeah, no. Um, Look, I think it was so cool that 
you went back and watched the entire series. I remember like it was a thing amongst like our friends. Like if someone hadn't seen you a bit, it's like, oh, where are you at in Saturday Night Live? Because I think we were all kind of like rallying behind you and doing this because you're the only person I know who could say they have done it. And I think that's actually such a cool thing as someone who is a super fan in other, you know, shows or movies. I think that's so cool that you could say that you've done that, to have that under your belt, to be able to really discuss and have discourse about the show in ways that the casual fan cannot and really hear from fans who are on your level of fandom. So I applaud you for that. I think it's awesome. And I don't know how I didn't see Saturday Night Live being your number one pick. Just like, I don't know how I didn't see Survivor being your number one pick. Yeah, I mean, we're talking, uh, that's why I wanted to be very clear of what the criteria was. This is recommendations, must-see television. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's very hard. I have so many shows that I like, and it's so hard to pick for one over another. But these are the ones that I feel like I need to recommend. If you haven't watched and, you know, a lick of television in your entire life, which show am I going to recommend to you to watch? It would be that. And let's get into the drama, our last category for the evening. And for my honorable mention for my drama, and I'm curious to see if we have similar ones or not, but honorable mention is Prison Break. So, <laughs> yes. Yes, this is the show we watched together. Prison Break season one, to me, is potentially the most compelling television ever. And uh, that is not hyperbolic. That is literally, it is, you know, uh, 20-something episodes of just pure tension and excitement to see if they're going to break out of this prison and the character development, the type of prisoners that they have there, the story itself is so, so good. The reason it is not my favorite is because number one, the originally only four, eventually five seasons. So, you know, a little bit shorter than your average, you know, amazing show there, you know, the storylines of all the characters to me were not necessarily fleshed out in the way that I wanted them to be. And it wasn't as, you know, for, for developing such a strong start, I don't know that it kept its momentum throughout. Whereas this other show, which, as you know, is probably my favorite show ever, 24, is... To that me, one I knew. <laughs> that one you knew. That one is probably, to me, this is the greatest show of all time. And the one that, if anyone asks me, you know, we're, we're, we're too far past it for people to me make recommendations. If you haven't watched it, you're probably never going to watch it, which is really unfortunate. But once you do watch it, I always get those people who come back to me and say, wow, you were right about 24. Like, you were right. It's just so amazing. Because this is a show that premiered, you know, right after 9-11. And this was at a time when people were really interested to kind of learn and understand, you know, terrorism and what it was like for these crime organizations like Homeland Security was created in the States and what it was like for these people to, you know, defend your country. And the reason this show was so compelling is because it is a 24 episode season. So it's like, there's an order to it and it begins some seasons, but for the most part begin at 12 midnight. And after the first episode, you know, you get to 1259 and you watch the last four seconds countdown and it stops at 1 a.m. And then the next episode would be 1 a.m. to 2, p- to 2 a.m. And every episode is an hour and a 24-hour day. And if you could only imagine the type of drama that goes on in any other show, if you're going to stop on the hour, what kind of cliffhangers you could end up with, it is the most addicting show probably that's ever existed because it ends so abruptly to the point where you're like, no, now I need to watch the next one that I just find it so fascinating. 
Yeah, no, I mean, that's right there. The fact that it's the whole season is hour by hour and it's a full day has been, and look, I've only seen a couple episodes of 24, all of which have been with you, but that has been the most compelling component to me in terms of what is so cool about this show. I mean, I understand it has an, a huge, huge, huge fandom. I understand um, they were supposed to, correct me if I'm wrong, make a movie at some point. Um, they yeah, were- so they were supposed to, so the, the series originally, it had eight seasons, it ended. They were going to make a movie because they left a lot of things like up in the air. And then they ended up coming back for another season, uh, like a few years later. So they brought back a lot of the cast and they did another season, which was really good. But then they left everything again on a cliffhanger. So we were all still kind of waiting to see what's going to be happening with that. And then they brought it back again a couple of years ago, but with a whole new cast and a new story with, you know, uh, with the exception of a few several characters. But there's still like a lot of loose threads that are out there. So a lot of people believe that the show will continue eventually. I believe Kiefer Sutherland is busy with Designated Survivor, another show that's on Netflix right now. So as soon as he's done with that, I believe that they're probably going to finish up the story eventually. I really hope they do. But this is a show, like I said, that defied boundaries with regards to the way you tell a story when it came to this 24-hour clock and the use of split screen in the show. Because what would happen was between commercial breaks, you would have, let's say it's 7.45 in the evening, and they would show the clock at 7.45 with the seconds going up, and you would have a split screen of four different scenes, like four characters, and what was all happening at the same time. So it wasn't like your typical drama where you see something happen and then you move to different characters in a different scene. You actually believe that all the stuff is happening at the same time, which makes it more real and more compelling. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, as someone who does video work, I mean, that's literally what I do for a career. I've always found that part really interesting, the way they manipulate and have the production to really make you feel like this whole thing is going on in one day. And I think that's a great technique to do so, to see everything that is going on at once rather than dragging it out and, you know, playing different scenes that are happening at the same time separately. So, yeah, I mean, look, I've been hearing you talking about 24 now since we were little, little, little. Um, So not watching it myself, I know how great it is from you. Now, in regards to my honorable mention, the exact same, I'm going to go with Prison Break. You kind of said it best. I think the early seasons of Prison Break, I'm going to go as far as to say seasons one and two are some of the greatest television ever. You said it yourself. It is not hyperbolic to say so. It really is. And I think it's because it follows that format of having you really invested in the characters. I think they did such a great job, not even necessarily on the main characters, the Schofields. I think the supporting characters are just so good. I mean, the fact that you can really get behind and be rooting for these these criminals you know, these people who are outcasts of society. I mean, um, Teabag is one of the most sadistic characters you will probably see on scripted television, yet you love him. You love him as a character. You can't wait till he's in the next scene or in the next episode. And just all of them, this group of, um, what was, I hate that I'm forgetting the name of the group. Yeah, it was the Fox River 8. So yeah, the entire Fox River 8, I mean, them as a collective, they just worked so well. And I mean, the fact that you can get invested into their individual stories, but then the way they come together as a collective was just so good. 
I don't think if the rest of the series was better, it would be higher just because I think so strongly of my number one pick. But it definitely did fall off. I mean, season three did not hold up in comparison to the first two seasons. It might be with the fact that the main premise of the show, Escaping from Prison, is something that it's hard to do once you've escaped. You know, I remember first, and it's funny, it came out so long ago, but I remember seeing the first trailer I'd ever seen for the show and thinking to myself, how is this not a movie? How are they going to make this into a whole season? To my surprise, years later watching it, they did an amazing job of making it into a whole season. In fact, they made a whole follow-up of, spoiler alert, after they escape and when they're on the lam. And they did such a good job. But it's the second they start going back into prison and then they start finding out the conspiracy of why they're in prison. That's where it got a little ahead of itself. I think that's what I'm going to say. Ahead of itself, it started to go into territories it shouldn't have and trying to stay relevant and trying to stay fresh. And even though it wouldn't be as long as any of the classic television shows ever, if they did just two seasons of Prison Break and then did some sort of wrap-up, it would be up there. I think of one of the greatest shows of all time because as you and I believe it to be, the first two seasons of Prison Break is one of the greatest. Now, my number one drama, thriller, action, whatever you want to call this category, is Breaking Bad. I got into Breaking Bad really late. I was late to the party. I actually binged all of Breaking Bad in about two weeks or so, two, three weeks, and I actually was lucky enough to manage to finish the second to last episode of the series right before the last episode aired. I got to enjoy it in real time and oh my God, that series was mind-blowing in so many different ways, how different it was. The fact that I had never seen anything like this, I mean, it was literally a show around the, around the concept of making and selling methamphetamines. I mean, this, it showed a world that I at least felt an exception to shows like The Wire, which a lot of people would argue is the best show of ever also, it was something that hadn't been done. It was a world that had not been explored on TV, that had not been shared, and especially in the light that it was. I mean, you had Walter White, the main character, who is this guy at the beginning of the show. He's a, a chem teacher who finds out he has cancer and ends up in this world of making and selling meth with the initial intent of leaving his family some sort of nest egg. I thought it was so cool. He teams up with Jesse Pinkman, who at the time is just some street rat who's selling, you know, who's low-budgetly selling meth. The two characters together are one of the most dynamic duos of television. They're amazing. The contrast between them and the development of them. Because as I keep saying, character development, character relatability, the ability to love the characters you are watching is the most important thing that makes a show great. And the characters in this show, whether it be the two of them, whether it be Saul Goodman, were just so lovable. And for so many different reasons, the fact that you're cheering Walt on at the beginning, but then later Jesse becomes so lovable, the flip of these characters' roles of the one that is good no longer being so good and the one that has always been perceived as bad is actually, to an extent, the angel of the two is just so phenomenally done. The, if you want to call it villain, overarching villain of the show is such a complex and 
unexpected and so well portrayed character in Gus Fringe. Um, it's an amazing show. I could talk about it forever. I think if it's not The Office, Breaking Bad is the greatest show of all time. I know that's up for debate. I know that's extremely subjective. That's how I feel. It's incredible. I'm happy it's not longer. It is one of the few shows that I believe ended perfectly to the T. And that is so rare because you have a show and I, I'm, I hate to say kind of happy you didn't have it in your comedy category, like How I Met Your Mother that we loved for so many years and then took such a wrong turn and ended so horribly in the last couple seasons just falling off just with the attempt to stay on the air and stay relevant yet breaking bad and i know these are comparing apples to oranges but breaking bad served its time and was just so incredible and perfect and for those reasons and many others is why i love breaking bad and it is my number one must-see TV show in the drama category, if not in television. And I'm almost exasperated because I'm so passionate about this show. It's great. I, I love it. I love that we can get so passionate about these types of shows. And obviously, you are totally entitled to feel that way. And uh, I think I feel very similarly about 24. What's very interesting and that we could probably discuss and study this is that there is a definitely a different feeling between our reality, our comedy, and our drama in that almost our drama feels a little bit more personal and a little bit more emotional. And I think that's what the shows are trying to invoke in a way. It's almost just like, you know, when I was talking about your children and it's hard to pick between your children, it's almost like your uh, drama is your first child that you've ever had. And you had that feeling where it's like, there's like, you know, you love your other children, but there's this like close bond because this is the first time you've ever been a parent. So there's something about 24 with me and there's something about Breaking Bad with you that feels a little bit more personal, whereas the comedy aspect and our favorite comedy shows are a little bit more like, you know, our friends or that kid that you get along with and you joke around with a little bit more and you have a little bit more of a lighthearted relationship with. And then the reality TV is the fun one, right? The fun kid who's like, uh, you know, always up for a good time. So whether you want to describe it in your parent-child relationship or your friends, that the drama being the more serious emotional one, the comedy being, you know, the one that you sit around and laugh with, and then your reality being the fun friend that you drink with. That is, you know, it's so much fun to talk about these television shows. So I believe that will do it for today. Is there anything else you wanted to add? No, I mean, that just does, that about does it. We said it all, you know, if you're listening, if you're out there, um, let us know what shows you love. Uh, maybe we'll talk about them. Maybe we'll have you come on here and talk about them. And whatever show you love, I hope you are as passionate about it as we are with ours because there's something really incredible about the concept of, you know, falling in love with these characters who aren't real but feel so real to you, you know? And I find, you know, sometimes there are people who, kind of get ridiculed for fandom i mean i don't know if you saw that recent video that went viral of this um it was this guy who was reviewing the new star wars trailer and he started bawling he started getting so emotional over it that he was crying and then there were these tweets of this girl who was roasting him and she ended up going viral with the internet kind of coming to his rescue the reason why i'm bringing this up is some people will be on your case for 
feeling so strongly about these fictional characters, about these shows, but they're such big parts of our lives. I mean, you can't tell me 24 wasn't a huge part of your adolescence, of growing up. And the fact that it was and how real these shows feel to us, I think is an amazing and a beautiful thing. And I don't know, I just love great television. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And I love great podcasts too. I think that today was a really great podcast that we put together, whether uh, we were talking about a little bit more serious issues, whether it was sports um, or whether it was TV. I think it was a really interesting discussion. So as Nick said, let us know what you think. We're always up for discussion. And as we continue to move forward, as previously mentioned, hopefully we're going to get some guests. We're going to do a live podcast. I look to beginning to promote these a little bit more as uh, we move forward and we can uh, get uh, our word out there about our podcast. So if you're listening to this, uh, feel free to tell your friends. You can follow Nick at FreyNick on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow myself at John Schneider 24 as well. And we look forward to speaking to you next time with more interesting discussion. Hope everyone has a really, really great rest of the week and we will see you next time. See you then.